New York ain't New York anymore. How I miss those old pals of mine. Today, mapping the source of the Nile River is as boring and easy as a Google search. But the mystery intrigued humanity for centuries. In this episode, best-selling author and master storyteller Candace Millard introduces us to the men who won a race worthy of Indiana Jones. But first, hello history lovers and welcome. I'm your host Dean Carianis and this is the History Author Show on iHeartRadio. And a special tip of the hat, as always, to everybody who watches via YouTube. I know that people have a lot of things to watch online, and so I really appreciate everyone who subscribes there and checks out how I try to produce these up to give you that old History Channel golden era feeling. You can find me at HistoryAuthor.com or across social media platforms by navigating through from there, and you can also read my daily columns in the New York Sun to get my analysis of current events through the lenses of what I've learned from all these books behind me. And yes, I really do read them. The latest book on the shelf is Candace Millard's River of the Gods, Genius, Courage, and Betrayal in the Search for the Source of the Nile. In it, we meet three very different men who achieved one of the greatest feats of discovery ever and examine their legacy at the vanguard of colonialism. We last met up with Candace Millard to discuss her book, Hero of the Empire, The Boer War, A Daring Escape, and the making of Winston Churchill. I often refer to that as his origin story, and as somebody who read even his first person account of that adventure, this was really a great book, taught me some new things. So I would definitely check that out and check out the interview too. Regular listeners may also have heard me praise Candace Millard's book, Destiny of the Republic, A Tale of Madness, Medicine, and the Murder of a President, as well as The River of Doubt, Theodore Roosevelt's darkest journey. For more, you can visit CandiceMillard.com, where you will navigate through to her social media accounts on Twitter and Facebook. Okay, now that we've arrived back in the 19th century's golden age of exploration, let's join Candace Millard and paddle south on the mighty Nile, also known as River of the Gods. And here we are with Candace Millard. She's joining us to chat about her new book, River of the Gods, Genius, Courage, and Betrayal in the Search for the Source of the Nile. Welcome back to the show, Candace. Thanks so much for having me, Dean. Appreciate it. Well, thank you for going through the hard work I know you do to bring us another great story because it's it's really enjoyable. And as I was thinking about doing this interview, I noticed a thread that I saw going through all of your books, and that's exploration and the quest for knowledge and trying to advance humanity. Mm -hmm. Even in Destiny of the Republic, you begin it at the World Fair, which is showing all this great new technology. And this is the (laughs) backdrop for the new world that's starting to begin there in James Gay Garfield's time, who's a very intellectual man, that all of your books are like that. So as somebody with a lot of ideas, What was it about finding the headwaters of the longest river in the world that caught your interest and inspired you to bring us River of the Gods? Yeah, it's a great uh, question. Well, interestingly, it really relates to what you're saying. I was working at National Geographic magazine when I first heard the story. This was 20 years ago. And I was obviously steeped in that world, the world of, of exploration, the world of quest 
of the quest for knowledge in all of its many forms. And, um, and I was just fascinated with the personal aspects of the story as well. These two very, very different men and their friendship and then the betrayal of that friendship. Um, and so it just had always been in the back of my mind. And I'm always looking for um, story ideas, book ideas. And um, so after I finished my book about Winston Churchill, I, I, it just kind of kept occurring to me. And I thought, I just don't know. We live in this very, very different world now where we understand that this isn't just about, you know, Europeans going into Africa or Asia or wherever they went and, and discovering places that where people, millions of people have lived for millions of years. So, but then when I was reading it, I read about City Mubarak Bombay and it all clicked for me, the understanding of the people who lived there actually making these expeditions possible, actually actually really, really contributing significantly to the mapping of these worlds. And that to me made it something that I wanted to write about, that I wanted personally to learn more about. You bring back some of these people that are so easy to just skim by and it's a real talent. And you do that here with these with these three men, Richard Francis Burton, Lieutenant John Hanning Speck, is it? I, I meant to ask you Speak. beforehand. Yeah. Speak. Okay. S P E K E. My oversight. That's a hard one. Right. Yeah. I always like to ask before or look it up, but since nobody's really <laughs> talked about him in a while until we right. get to read no, over the gods. A lot of people call him Speck, yeah. <laughs> and City Mubarak Bombay. Right. So say we are arriving at their camp uh, on those reedy banks of the Nile. And you're going to tell me, first of all, hey, this guy's name is not is not Speck. It's Speak or <laughs> little things like that. What uh, would you tell me? These are the three guys we are going to meet. Here's how you approach each one. Here's what you're going to get from each one, because that's exactly what you do here in River of the Gods. Well, I think that the first person we would notice right away would be Richard Francis Burton, who was just striking in every conceivable way. He was just one of these once in a century characters, right? He was an incredible explorer already. First Englishman to enter Mecca disguised as a Muslim because he, his Arabic was practically flawless and he, he, he could cite a quarter of the Quran by heart. He also, let's just say, he studied every culture and religion and respected none. So he had no concerns about, you know, entering. I mean, there's a reason this is a forbidden city, but he didn't care, right? Um, but he was also, he spoke 25 different languages at least plus another dozen or so dialects. He was just absolutely brilliant and very strange. He, he was interested in absolutely everything. You know, he would try any drug. He would try any sex. He was fascinated by sex. He was just like very alarming to Victorian England, especially. And he was also riveting to look at. Everyone who, who met him described his black hair and his black eyes and especially even his teeth. So Bram Stoker, who wrote Dracula, would go on later to write Dracula, met him and was mesmerized. He was obsessed with Burton. And he talked about his gleaming incisors, his gleaming teeth, you know, like, and he literally said, like a dagger. And so people think he may have been an uh, inspiration for Dracula. Um, and then you meet John Hanning Speak, who is Burton's opposite in almost every way. So he was what Britain's expected their heroes to be. So he was he was fine-boned, blonde hair, blue-eyed. He was born in the aristocracy. He was a lieutenant in the British Army. He loved to hunt. 
Um, and he seemed very sort of quiet and modest, but actually inside of him was this burning ambition. And he very quickly came to envy and then resent Burton, his commander, deeply. And it turned into this just festering hatred that ended up destroying them both. Um, and then you meet Sidi Mubarak Bombay, who really became, very quickly became the heart of this expedition and really the hero of this expedition. He um, had been uh, kidnapped as a child from his village in East Africa, taken to Zanzibar where he was sold for cloth, and then taken to Western India where he was enslaved for 20 years. He, when the man who owned him died, he, gave, he was given his freedom. He made his way back to East Africa and he became really, I mean, I think it's hard to argue, the most accomplished guide in the history of African exploration. He's really somebody who not only jumps off the page, but you have a picture of him later in life that I'll show for people that are watching via YouTube. And it reminded me of something that Pope John Paul II said, and he said, do, do not look away from age. Don't be pushing people to say, oh, only only youth matters and that age, because he's clearly right. a man who's lived this this huge, tough life. You literally right. read the scars on his face. You can see it yes. in his teeth. And yet he has this huge smile. And <laughs> it, it, you, this is a guy I want to meet when I find out he was held in slavery and he, he walked right. How many miles he over the course of his life? They, they, they estimate around 6,000 miles. Yeah, yeah. 6, he, he, he became, along with Bernie Lovett Cameron, the first to cross the entire continent from, from east to west, sea to sea. But like you were saying, to me, what's most striking about Sidi Mubarak Bombay is he had this incredible kindness, this incredible generosity, this unbelievable spirit, even coming out of having lost everything, having been treated like unimaginably, you know, enslaved for almost 20 years. How does he emerge from that with the softest of hearts? You know, again and again, people are like, oh, he's just not tough enough with the borders, you know, he's just, but, but always appreciative when he would show such kindness and generosity to them, including um, to Burton and Speak. I mean, they, Speak never wanted to go anywhere in East Africa with Bombay, and many people felt that way. <laughs> well, it brings me perfectly to my next question about River of the Gods, and that's a quote, and it's from a poem that somebody wrote about Bombay, and there you go. If, you, if you're somebody <laughs> that inspires, inspired you right. to write River of the Gods, but also inspiring people to write poetry, I think it says something. And the quote is, the lake rippled from one end of the world to the other, wide as a sea cradled in a giant's palm. So I wanted to ask you to take that and just as people are fascinated here with Bombay, how fascinated they are with the Nile itself and how in the Victorian era, the way that they looked at that river, river of the gods compares to how we would look at it today. Well, interesting. Yeah. And I'll say the interesting thing, too, about that poem is it was written by an Indian poet, Ranjit Hiskote, who's this incredible poet. And I love the beauty of that, 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 you know, that was where Bombay was enslaved for so long. And now today, one of their premier poets is immortalizing and giving this appreciation of, of Bombay in a, a beautiful, beautiful poem about him that he so kindly let me excerpt for the beginning of my book. Um, so, you know, obviously in the Victorian age, 
people were fascinated with the Nile for many reasons, but especially because they didn't know where it began, right? And this was a mystery that had been going on for thousands of years, you know, ancient philosophers, Egyptian kings, everyone had been wondering where is the source of the Nile and trying to find out. So, so that was an obsession at that time. Um, and for many reasons, I mean, the Nile is fascinating for many reasons. Obviously, it's the longest river in the world. It's the most storied river in the world. And it brought life to one of the richest and oldest civilizations on Earth, um, the Egyptian civilization. So, you know, I mean, 96%, even today, 96% of Egyptians live along the banks of the Nile River because the rest is a desert. So it brings in, it literally brings life to, to this world. And for that reason, we're still obsessed with it, you know, even though, okay, now we know and we can look at satellite pictures, we can look and see what the source was. Um, and we can see, we can anticipate any problems. I think at that time, because so much life relied on the Nile River, you know, it's more than 4,000 miles long. The fear is, oh, A, is it gonna overflow? It does, right? It floods its banks. And that both is a good thing, but it also can be a very dangerous thing. Or B, is it gonna go away? <laughs> you know, so you don't know where it comes from. There's this fear, will it stop coming, right? One day. And so, um, but even today, the stories, the history, the beauty, the majesty. I mean, I think still today, it's hard to meet anybody who doesn't wanna to go to Egypt, right? And immerse themselves in this incredible beauty and history, but also, you know, what's happening today. And, um, and the Nile is at the heart of that we're still so fascinated by all the pharaohs and movies books tv shows right, right, everything right, that, right, that right. has shown the us pop culture yeah yes and no like you said people love to travel they love to read about it and it's just a mm -hmm. fascinating fascinating cleopatra we haven't even mentioned her yet right. but there's just so much to talk about and this river <laughs> river of the gods shows us the very center of it and how this generation in the golden age of exploration Right. They went back and they decided this, we're going to solve this big mystery of, of our right. time and for all time up to then. And then you share that with us because I, I can tell you got really sucked up in it too, right? You, you're almost an Egyptologist now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. That would be great. I would love that. But I, but yeah, it's, it really truly is irresistible once you start learning about it. And it's fascinating too, to think about. So, you know, at this time in the Victorian era, earlier, people were fascinated by Rome and Greece, right? And they taught their children those languages and the priests and that that was where their focus and that's what they studied in school. And then it was at the end of the 18th century when they found the Rosetta Stone. And this, they realized this unlocked this whole other world, right? Of hieroglyphics and demotics. And now we can understand, start to understand this world. And it really shifted their focus and they're like, yeah, yeah, Rome and Greece, but this is an even older, richer civilization. We need to know more about that. And, you know, people had been trying, as I said, for thousands of years to figure out where the source of the Nile is. The problem was they were starting at the Mediterranean Sea and ascending the river by going south, right? But then they would quickly, quickly hit what is called the Sud, the, um, these swamplands, and nobody could get through them. Um, and it just didn't, they tried again and again and again and never happened. And it wasn't until the mid 1850s when they realized, okay, what we need to do, we need to take a completely different approach. We're going to start well below the equator and we're going to go into the interior. And they had no idea what was in there. 
they they just believe that this is where we're going to find the source of the White Nile. You mentioned the Rosetta Stone there, and right. that's that's one of those things that in the past 120 years maybe has just come to mean something that's a translation that's a cipher probably to young people today. But at right. the time, I wanted you to mention that in this quest, what what does that mean? What's the practical application of now being able to read some of those hieroglyphics and help them figure out? Because you think about how big this area is and you're <laughs> yeah. walking into it and you'd like to maybe have, have something <laughs> to give you a guide. So what role does the actual Rosetta Stone play after they're able to translate some things? So, well, the Rosetta Stone was really the inspiration for like remembering it and remembering, you know, it had always been absolutely one of those the holy grail of exploration, right? But people were going all around the world trying, there, was, there were a lot of places to quote unquote discover, right? Or to map for Europeans in the Western world to try to map, to try to understand the rest of our world, which is just a very, very natural human characteristic. This and it's, in many ways, it's a good thing, you know, our, our natural curiosity, it can lead to bad things, obviously. And in, and in this case, it did without, without doubt it, you know, it was the direct and intended consequence of this exploration was invasion and colonization. So bad things come out of it. But the essential desire to understand our world is just a very human characteristic and obviously um, goes on today. And so, so the Rosetta Stone inspired that again, the beauty and the richness and the, and the very ancient nature of this world and the Nile being very much at the heart of it. And as you say, I mean, but nobody knew, right? There was like no information for people on the outside about what lay inside. And so what happened was in about, I think it was 1853, the Royal Geographical Society, so this vaunted society of science and exploration in London, um, it's this map. And it was, it was drawn by these two um, German missionary explorers who had had, they thought, this like moment of insight. Like, people had assumed that there was like a desert in the interior of Africa. And they said, no, there's one sea, one vast inland sea. And so they drew this gigantic sea. It was just huge and people struggled to describe it. And so it became known as the slug map. It just looked like a giant slug, right? And they believed that that was the source of the Nile. So the Nile is so enormous, so mind-blowingly huge that its source has to be equally large. Um, and in a way they're wrong, right? In a way they're wrong because it turned out there were not, was not just one huge sea, but three enormous seas. And one of them was the source. Amazing to think of how much it was like, uh, I was trying to think of a comparison, going to Mars, think about how hungry yes. we are and how fascinated when yeah. we get some information, but at least people <laughs> have been to Egypt, the, but it's hard to speak, maybe to read, but that, that's really what this would have felt like. This is really going into the unknown. Right, right. And it's, it's, you know, very far from Egypt. So you got it. So no one had gone again. You can't get there by going south on the on the river by ascending the river. You've got to cut through. And it finally worked. I love that part of River of the Gods and in your other work as well, that you bring us back to that time and really hammered into our minds as readers, gently, of course, I'm not saying it, that it's a, <laughs> not a literal hammer, but it just, it, it's a talent. Hammer's not, not the right word, but Thank the you. way that you, <laughs> the way that you bring us back is reminding us that this is a time 
for instance, I have a friend who's in Dubai right now as mm. we're recording this. He text messages me just as if he was right next door in, next in door, the same right. room or in the U.S. Like it's right. you get it instantly, right? Right. And that's that's right. the thing in, in River of the Gods where we you take us back, and I and I wondered if there's some of those things that you do when you're building your novel, you're writing River of the Gods, and you say, "Wow, this is a really good way to remind people or show them." just how different the technology was. And therefore, mm. even though the people were the same and that yearning to explore was the same, the right. challenge that these men face is completely right. different. Absolutely, you know, and that's something, I think it's really hard to wrap your mind around. You know, you think these men spent years, years away from home, years in the interior and, and traveled thousands of miles by foot, they had donkeys that were always running away or breaking down. Um, but most of it, you know, by foot carrying everything that they needed again for years. You know, sometimes they would leave stuff and hope that another expedition coming through could bring it to them to resupply. But um, yeah, it was really difficult. And they faced like just unimaginable challenges, the kinds of things that you think, I'm really glad I'm just reading about this and not experiencing for myself for <laughs> yeah. the 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 diseases alone that they experienced. I mean, both men were um, blinded for months at a time. Um, Burton had such severe malaria he was paralyzed for almost a year. <laughs> you know, while they're on this incredibly grueling expedition he can't walk, you know, he has to be carried and he's a big guy. Although by that time, you know, he had lost a lot of weight because they're also near starvation constantly, you know, and he can't even, even hold a pen. And that's who he was. He was constantly writing um, on an, when this, before this first expedition began, when they were in Somalia starting out, um, they were attacked one night. And again, so they're going into this world that they don't know anything about, but obviously people have lived there for millions of years and they have not been invited to this land, you know, and they, so they are, they definitely um, represent potential danger to these people. So there is obviously the danger of attack, you know, just out of defense um, by the peoples who live there. And they were attacked one night and um, speak was, stabbed 11 times. I mean, it was just a miracle that he survived. And Burton had a javelin thrust through his jaw from cheek to cheek. And for like hours, he had it, he couldn't get it out. And he, for the rest of his life, he had this really long jagged scar down his cheek, which made him seem even sort of more suspicious and dangerous um, character than, than Britain's already thought he was. So the, yeah, the, the, what they overcame was incredible. You know, it was really a very, very dangerous um, expedition, not just for them, but for all of the men in the expedition because all their porters and things, they, they didn't know a lot of this land too. And they didn't know the peoples who lived there. And, um, and, but they knew more than Burton and Speak, so they knew to be afraid and they were right. The dangers are one thing because that's very vivid to write about and people tend to remember that and write it down and that's right. great for your narrative and it was the same same sort of thing of uncontacted tribes when you wrote river of doubt because mm -hmm. there's theodore mm -hmm. roosevelt in this group and the, they're watching them the whole time and he has the scene to just, right yeah i would just invite people to go read it and he, he's Thank going you. there and that just the way that that needs to be handled and his partner in the expedition and mm -hmm. that's all really vivid and obviously i'm remembering it now but another aspect of the lack of technology is 
there's a lot of downtime in an expedition. Mm -hmm. you, you think about mm -hmm. even mm -hmm. when you go on your own vacation today, there's a right. lot of time in a plane and then right. that's not really exciting or interesting. So <laughs> I wondered, for example, when they're about to enter the monsoon season where they can't travel, and then mm -hmm. they're also sitting languishing in Zanzibar when it's the dry season so they can't right. go anywhere. Right. I wondered <laughs> what, what were they doing during that time and how did those things help you in writing this story and telling river of the gods so that you could show us or at least get something from how our explorers mm -hmm. used that free time that downtime even the time that they were sick or stabbed and right. recovering right. so that you can help tell their story yeah it's actually a gift to a writer because there are things that yeah it's it's fun obviously and those kind of write themselves whether you know the attack or you know when they're really sick or there's this like you know, uh, speak, gets this beetle in his ear and ends up deafening himself. You know, those things are easy to describe, but there are things that you also, questions that you have to answer. So, so obviously readers are going to be like, but well, how did they get all of these supplies? You know, did they bring everything with them? That seems crazy. How are they going to do that? You know, how did they hire their porters? How, how, how do they, how do you structure um, an expedition like this at this time. And so when they're there, that gives me the opportunity to do that. And to me, at least, and I hope to, to the readers, it's fascinating, you know, especially they're in Zanzibar. And I was, I had the great pleasure and honor to go to Zanzibar when I was researching this, this book. And it is everything that you would hope it would be. It's like every conceivable color and smell and, and, I mean, just like, it's just this, you're just awash in senses, right? It's just an incredibly beautiful, rich, rich world. And it was at that time as well. And there are these huge markets, even today, I went into these markets and they're selling just everything. And there's, again, just your senses are on overload. And so that's where they got a lot of their supplies. So I can talk about, even talk about the kind of money that they use. And they're always talking about dollars and this was this many dollars and i was like dollars but there are these it was an old old uh, maria Teresa dollar that they would use for trading that they had used even at that time it'd been like a hundred of years um, that they've been using this type of currency so to me it's really fascinating what they're doing with that time you know how they're preparing and how they're it, you know, it was, that, it was at that time that they met Bombay, you know, when they were kind of like, oh, let's do a little exploring around here before we can go into the interior. And they met Bombay, who became, as I said, the heart of their expedition. So and and even when they're off and they're sort of at a point where they have to rest and wait, they use that time to repair, repairing their tents, you know, repairing their clothing are like in rags, you know, so they're trying to get cloth so they can sew more clothes to wear. Um, trying to get more food, trying to be prepared enough to move on, not only physically, but in all the other supplies that they need. Um, so yeah, that's definitely part of the process. And to me, at least, it's a really, really interesting part of it. You're enjoying my conversation with Candace Millard. She's author of River of the Gods, Genius, Courage, and Betrayal in the Search for the Source of the Nile. Visit her at CandiceMillard.com, and from there you can find her Twitter and Facebook accounts. I can promise you she is active there, and you'll be glad to keep track of what she's doing because it's a lot of really great history and fun storytelling. Publishers Weekly says of River of the Gods, Millard's lushly detailed adventure story keeps a steady eye on the racial power dynamics involved in this imperialist endeavor 
and brilliantly illuminates the characters of Burton, Speak, and Bombay. Readers will be riveted. Now, Candace, I, I did want to touch on that. And earlier we talked about Bombay a little, but I just pushed it a little bit later because this is something that is important because you're writing about a period a long time ago with different social conventions and you're dealing with somebody in Mr. Bombay that had been written out of the story, that that wasn't a, a comedic guy. Here we want this, this dashing Burton, even though he wouldn't have been somebody you'd want to meet. He was endlessly fascinating <laughs> for the press yeah. there, right? And it was like, well, yeah, he had a guide, I guess. And it was just some guy. Yeah. And so let's, let's move on. And right. I guess right. that's natural. You know, you're, you'll tell right. stories about people that look like you. But what we don't like to look back on and what is cringeworthy is two things that are your challenges. I see it in writing River of the Gods. And that's on the one hand, you don't want to gloss over the fact that this is an era where there are many negatives from the colonialism that you have people right. who it's almost a international spring break and, and people are dying and they're just, well, we're going to go and we want to go see this town. So we're going to, and they ruin it because just mm -hmm. carelessness or ignorance, or just because they are genuinely bad people sometimes, mm -hmm. but also you don't want to fall into the Rudyard Kipling trap and start writing a take up the white man's burden and look at somebody like Siddiq Bombay as, oh, he's almost a pet to them. And you don't want mm -hmm. readers to mm -hmm. read that. You mm -hmm. you have a challenge because you want to you want to be honest about everything and mm -hmm. even. And I love that you do that in River of the Gods. So I wanted to ask you about how you wrote about that. How did you deal with the period of colonialism without going too far to it being scolding or too far to mm -hmm. it being that you just completely ignored it and you're not doing justice to the people that suffered while these guys are going through and looking all over these other countries trying to find things? Well, um, I hope I hope I did it well. It was um, definitely the biggest challenge of this book. Um, you, as you say, A, first of all, I wanted to be very, very honest um, about not just the things that happened, but also the things that they wrote about later and the legacy that this racism carried with it that we are still living with today. Um, I wanted to touch on all of that to the to the extent that I that I could, um, um, but but also I wanted to make sure that we wrote back into the narrative to, I feel like I'm quoting Hamilton here, but, um, but, but, but that we told the story to, again, to the extent that we could about these people who made these expeditions possible. And I'm obviously far from the first person to do this. This has been going on, thankfully, um, for a while now. And the Royal Geographical Society has really made an effort to, um, to their credit, you know, I mean, in the past, obviously, when Burton and Speak, and were there, especially there were these armchair geographers, these gentlemen scientists who would pretend to, of course, you can never trust what someone who actually lives there has to tell you about it, you know, but at the same time, they all use that information. I mean, that was the information that they had, right? They would go there and immediately start asking people, what, what have you seen? Where have you traveled? What can you tell us? What advice can you give me? And then they would pretend like that never happened. <laughs> and I'm just this, uh, I'm, you know, I'm just this person who knows everything, right? I'm just incredibly knowledgeable and I've seen this for myself. Um, so, so I wanted to, again, to the extent that I could and um, in the most respectful way that I could say, hey, let's be honest here. You know, none of this would have happened. These guys would have not gotten two feet into the African interior without people who actually lived there. And they certainly would not have understood it, you know, 
And, um, and it, you know, I, again, everybody has a different um, feeling about these things, but to me, I call Lake Victoria the Nyanza. <laughs> I mean, these places had a name and to think of, I mean, this is the Nyanza, which is the source of the White Nile and is the largest lake in Africa, the largest fresh later, freshwater lake in the world is named for a Victor for for an English queen. I mean, it just seems crazy to me. Um, and the same with the Rosetta Stone. Again, nobody loves the British Museum more than I do, but the Rosetta Stone is at the British Museum. You know, not in Alexandria. They have a copy in Alexandria. So I don't know. These are all things that we are fortunately, as a people, humankind, we're we're dealing with now and we're we're talking about and we're we are making progress but obviously there's still a long way to go so in my very very small way i mean obviously there was no way i could tell the story without addressing the racism of the time and the legacy of that racism and without saying hey city mubarak bombay you need to know about him you need to know about these other reporters um, and so that was really, I wouldn't have written the book if I, if I couldn't do that. Whether I did a good job, whether I did it justice, I don't know. I hope so. I tried really, really hard. I spent five years um, working on this and I spent a lot of that time um, trying to figure out how to tell the story fairly. And um, I don't know, I, I did my best. It's something you read in both books or get from both books, this one and River of Doubt, where people doubt. And there's that element of, I mentioned Indiana Jones, right? When another, they're always stealing work from each other, these archeologists in those movies. Right. <laughs> and that's a thing with TR. And he in goes, real here, life. Yeah, here he only almost kills himself to do this, to do this mapping of the river of doubt. And then they say, oh, he didn't do it. And he has that right. great line about right. what do they think? Do they think I took the subway basically and just hopped <laughs> out at the other end? And yeah, uh, my, my like, body's ruined by this, right? Yeah. And the great thing about a river is it's still there. So you don't believe me, go find out for yourself. <laughs> yeah. Good luck. But, <laughs> that was, there was something about Burton there too, though, that was redeeming i guess you'd say and that's that he doesn't participate in slavery in islamic and african nations and right. as i'm reading it at the time you you really don't want to like this guy and it wouldn't be surprising <laughs> if he was dracula was based on him right he's, he's always just so brusque and he's he's it has no Arrogant respect for anybody and... or anything and then you say oh if this was a novel you would never tell me this noble forward-thinking quality that he had and yet here it is <laughs> so i i like that and i think in the hands of an author that did have an agenda and didn't want to tell a fair story a human story it'd be so easy to leave things like that out so i i like that you put that in because we all have our faults and and right. by seeing him that way it makes it again not just that well the the guide is is perfect that and this right. guy's really evil and i i just really like that and it, it keeps you reading Thank as a you. reader when you pick up river of the gods and i i wanted to ask you something about that that quote too and that's about the fact that you spent five years on this and that publisher's weekly recommendation for your book called it lushly detailed when we <laughs> spoke about hero of the empire you explained to me you use this star process when you're doing your mm. notes and we're both big highlighters if people are watching on youtube they can see where we have competing bookshelves here which i think is absolutely fantastic in fact there was an article on you recently in the new york times right that you've given up was it the new york times to give given up on mm -hmm. organizing your books so here yeah. we go here this is proof of it they look pretty neat but give us some, some examples of those one stars the four stars explain to people 
what the things were in there that were right on that line. And you said, I wish I could have included it. And maybe an example of something that you did include. And you said, wow, this jumps right off the page of me. How did that research work for five years to bring people River of the Gods and make it a book that people really can enjoy? And it's just like sailing down that smooth river when you're reading it. There's nothing that nothing that's herky jerky. You're not going to capsize. <laughs> Thank you. Well, um, I'll start about um, talking just a little bit about the research I did for this book, which was um, so, so fun, so interesting. So I early in the process, I was able to go to the UK and um, did a lot of research in that area. Um, obviously, the Royal Geographical Society, most of my time there, the British Library, Royal Asiatic Society, went to um, Edinburgh to the National Library of Scotland. Um, and um, something that comes later is, is the sort of shocking tragedy um, near the end of the book. Um, I was able to go where to where that happened. And it's still in the same family, that that house, that land. And it was really an incredible experience. Um, but obviously what I was most looking forward to and I most needed to do was to get to East Africa. Um, as you can imagine, that's um, a big trip, especially, you know, I have three kids. One is in college now, but at the time they're all at home. And whenever I go on a research trip or I go, uh, you know, on a book tour, my parents would come and stay with me. But it's hard to find a time. So I was going to be gone a month. And it's hard to find a time where that works, right? And I'm not going to be missing something important or whatever. And it works for everybody's schedule. So I was trying for years to make that happen. And finally, I landed on February of 2020. And so not knowing, I mean, I, I knew that obviously, you know, there was a problem in China at that time. And I knew, you know, it's going on in Europe a little bit, but there was really not much in the United States at that time. And so I really wasn't worried about going to East Africa. Um, uh, but as I'm traveling, so I, I go to Kenya, Zanzibar, Tanzania, Uganda, and moving, 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 moving. And I'm thinking, oh, wait, things are looking kind of iffy back home. You know, things are getting worse and worse and worse with the pandemic. So um, I finally was able to get home. I got home, I think it was like March 10th of 2020. So it was like right before the doors closed. So yeah, I just, my children were very nervous. <laughs> are you coming back? It's bad. Um, so, but but what happened is I was able to get all this information, really just seeing so much, trying just so much uh, is just in going to these places. Like you mentioned, River, River of Doubt, going to the Amazon and understanding, you're like, what? this is the richest ecosystem on the planet. And these guys are supposed to be these great hunters. How are they starving to death? And you go there and you're like, oh, I get it. Everything's eating you. There's anything you can eat. <laughs> Good luck, right? You just you see because of evolution, right? Everything's has evolved to be a very good predator or to not be prey, and that involves silence and hiding. So it was the same thing of going to East Africa and trying to understand these huge expanses of land that they traveled and the variety, the variety of the of the different habitations that they encountered and the and meeting some of the peoples you know today who were there at that time. It was just absolutely fascinating and enriching. And so then coming back and trying to organize all of that material as you as you talked about, that is a huge <laughs> undertaking. Um, and so, yeah, so I have the system where I, you know, star something where it's, this is good, you know, I should 
two stars or you should definitely use it. Three stars, you'd be a complete idiot if you don't use this. Um, and surprisingly, I mean, obviously the, the, the things that I, we talked about that they endured, you, you're definitely gonna wanna get that in. But, but some of the things that I found that were just interesting to me are some of these little stories of history that you would stop and tell a friend, for instance, um, during the Crimean War, so that, that also happens in the middle of this, right? Both Burton and Speak go to fight in the Crimean War. And these, as often happens in wars, for some reason, these people become heroes, right? And that kind of goes out into the world, into the population as products that you can then buy. Um, and so, for instance, the um, commander in chief of the British army in the Crimean War was the Baron of Raglan, and he had lost an arm um, in the Napoleonic Wars 40 years earlier. And so they sticked for him this new kind of sleeve instead of starting here, it started at an angle, right? This is this, it, the, it was one long piece from, from the shoulder down to the sleeve, this, this angle thing. And they called it the raglan sleeve from him. And so now we, we think of, oh yeah, the raglan sleeve baseball players wear it and things, but that's where it came from. Also, the Earl of Cardigan, who started wearing these wool vests that buttoned up the front and they called them cardigans. And that's where they said, so to me, those little bits of history at the side, it's not central to it, but, but I love it because to me, it's just fascinating. And it's the kind of thing I would stop and tell my husband, did you know? And so I, I love adding those things. You mentioned the idea of going there early in Zanzibar and you said, wow, the sensory input that I'm getting right. and that's that's so key to good writing and good history is to walk the land to be there but but also for good writing they always say touch all the senses and you do right. that and I mentioned your bookshelf and I just have books and I'm realizing your bookshelves look much better behind you because mine are a little <laughs> like the soup cans and sleeping with the enemy I I just realized maybe I need to break it up with put my put my Theodore Roosevelt bust on there of which no, I have two it looks, which, it looks which great. sounds really this is, crazy yeah this is not my office so this is just downstairs okay. in my home I had to be home today but my office looks like yours <laughs> well we have that video from your website I've seen that and yeah. I, I likened it to, to a starship last time that I saw your office <laughs> how you have all those screens and it's just that's for serious work but I wanted to mention it because you have something on the shelf that's not a book but that is so precious and I'll flash up a picture of it here for people watching on YouTube mm. but it's a vial and mm. I wanted you to tell right. me what, what's the story behind that and what does that mean to you and you your eye catches it there on your shelf right that was actually interesting it's a vial of the water from the Amazon River so I um a friend of mine was one of the first and I can't remember the details of it but he was one of the first to go down by canoe or kayak or something on the Amazon and he sent me a, a vial of the of the water um, as a gift as an homage to Theodore Roosevelt's adventure on the on the river of doubt did you get any water did you think of that when you were over there traveling that or scoop it up or is a reader going to yeah, say read river of the gods and yeah, I should have. I should have gotten some now. I, I, I didn't when I was there. But it was to me, it's the experience. It's the memories of being there. And 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 the most incredible thing, and I can send you, I have a picture of me right at the spot where the where the Nile rushes out of the Nyanza. And that was the most really I uh, probably the highlight of the trip, the most extraordinary moment because it's just just it's just breathtaking to think what this thing gives birth to i wanted to 
pass along a question from Todd Arrington, who's at the James A. Garfield oh, historic Todd. site. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I interviewed him previously about his book on the 1880 election. I would encourage people right. to listen to that and, and also to read that book because that's exciting really good times, right? Mm -hmm. And here you have the first, the only time rather that two Civil War veterans square off against each other. And since you are so identified with James A. Garfield, you're the Garfield gal. And people <laughs> people say, oh, okay. She's, that's an honor. And <laughs> it is an honor. Gosh, he's, yeah. he's the greatest president we never had, right? <laughs> and he is somebody who, when you're a presidential historian or you do a book on presidents, there's always that core of people that want you to write more about that and that are more right. fascinated. And so <laughs> when I was speaking to Todd, he said, there's, there's not really a Garfield connection, but I wonder what her pitch would be to people or how you'd tell people if they if they just love destiny of the republic and millions of people do it and rightly so it's an excellent book how would you explain to them that this is a book that has some similarities or or my style at my core as a writer is here and if you picked up this book about a president you maybe never heard of before and is wacky assassin <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> that you the kindest thing everyone's anyone's ever said probably about that guy who i will not name but anyway <laughs> how do you explain to people and say hey if you enjoyed that book even if you're just into presidents even if you're not from egypt even if you're one mm -hmm. of the people that doesn't really care about it it sounds very dusty and old mummies and i, I don't <laughs> care how what will your pitch be when you speak to people who are garfield supporters about why they should pick up river of the gods and go on a new adventure and learn the same sorts of things from you and all your careful research that they learned from reading that Garfield book. Well, I think that the way the, what this has in common with the Garfield book is it's sort of epic in nature. It, it, what I write about is very narrow, right? Moments in time, but they have lasting implications. And even at the time, they were incredibly, incredibly important and the people um, in them uh, you know, made a huge difference at that time. And so, and still today. And so what I, what I love about history, I love it. And I'm sure you get the same thing. People will come up to me and say, I thought I didn't like history. I thought history was really boring. And then I read this book and it totally changed my life. And so what I always say about narrative nonfiction is that to me, it's the gateway drug of history, right? And so you think <laughs> you don't like it, but then you read something by Eric Larson or Laura Hillenbrand or whomever it is, whoever just like grabs yeah, incredibly, incredibly <laughs> rich detail. And I mean, and the beauty of it, it's about people, right? And, and, and human nature. And so it's about, this book is about genius and envy and ambition and betrayal all these things that we know we, we see in ourselves, we see in the people around us. So human nature, everything else changes human nature always stays the same and it's always fascinating to people right and so and so whatever you read you're gonna find some connection something you're like I, oh i see it you know i oh yeah I, of course he would do that i know joe and he always is something you know it's very similar and so <laughs> you can understand it right and you can connect to it and it's absolutely fascinating and then you're learning something without it's not painful you're not dreading you're like i can't put it down at night but you're learning you're you're increasing your knowledge which we all want but in this effortless way you know and again though i hope it then opens a door for people 
to deeper reading, more academic histories or, or you know, biographies that are cradle to grave that are so fascinating. Um, I think once you fall in love with a book of history, as you know better than anyone, then you go down this chute, right? And there's no going back. And um, so I hope that this book will be that to some people, you know, it's absolutely adventure. And it's absolutely, you know, my kids always make fun of me for writing about well, these gruesome things, you know, but they're fascinating. <laughs> and, you know, we don't have to experience them. We can read about them. Um, but you learn something and it's really, it's, it's absolutely epic. Um, it kind of has it all. So um, I hope that this book might open that door for, for somebody new. Well, this book, River of the Gods, certainly does have it all. Thank you so much. She is Candace Millard. I want to thank her on behalf of everybody that's listening and watching. Her book, by the way, River of the Gods, it ends with the line, the thought will haunt me to death. And that would make a great first line. And so I'm going to tease everybody. You're going to want to pick up this book and find out a little, little hint of mystery there even in this book. River of the Gods is so much fun. It will stick with you for a very long time. You will not be haunted by it, but it does have some haunting imagery, beautiful, beautiful prose and men that we should definitely get to know, warts and alls with their flaws and see a little bit of ourselves as you were just saying in this book, Candace. So I hope readers will pick it up. And again, I thank you so much for spending time with me today. I look forward to reading your next book. I hope it's not five years, but I know that it'll be worth the wait. <laughs> thank you so much. I really, really enjoyed the conversation. Again, the book is River of the Gods, Genius, Courage, and a Betrayal in the Search for the Source of the Nile. As always, you can find the Amazon link to purchase your copy at the historyauthor.com page for this episode. By buying a book through us, you help keep the flux capacitor on our time machine humming like usual. My sincere thanks to Candace Millard. Boy, is she a lot of fun to talk to. Boy, is this a great book. These insights into this exciting quest, this race to discover the source of the Earth's greatest river, at least the longest river, was really something that I enjoyed and I'm so glad that she came and shared that magic with all of us. You can visit her at CandiceMillard.com and from there navigate through to her Twitter and Facebook accounts. If you enjoyed this conversation, please do check out our previous interview about that Winston Churchill origin story that was called Hero of the Empire. And you can subscribe for future adventures on our YouTube channel, or you can check out historyauthor.com and stream everything from there. Please do check out those 250 interviews that are in our archives. I'm sure you'll find something you like, but none you'll like more than these interviews with Candace Millard. What a great storyteller. Please do check out my social media accounts as well. You can find those at historyauthor.com. But for now, that's it for this installment of the History Author Show. I hope you'll join us for our next all-new interview right here on iHeartRadio or wherever you enjoyed this journey into yesterday. Until that next trip into the past together, on behalf of Candace Millard, thanks so much for time traveling with us today, and have a great week. We still call it Broadway, but what's in a name? Take it from Georgie, it isn't the same. On the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guy.